Well, I'm really happy to be here, and I feel like it's just an opportunity for me to bring what I've been meditating on and studying to the church, and hopefully encourage you. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. Let me pray. Um, just very quickly before I start. <clears throat> Let's pray. Oh God, may this time of instruction from your scriptures bring wisdom, understanding, into our hearts and minds. Protect us from what is spoken from my lips that is in error and bind us to what is spoken from the book that is true. We pray this in Christ. Amen. So, <clears throat> Esther 5 through chapter 8. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, went to the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. So was the distress of that man, a faithful citizen who had been loyal to the king, who actually had saved the king's life but never received any recompense and who had selflessly raised that little orphan cousin of his, Esther. He had prepared her to be queen in the Persian Empire. The enemy's plans were set in motion and in a few months order to destroy, kill, and exterminate the Jewish people would be carried out throughout the whole world. The one hope was little Esther, who was now not so little, Queen Esther. The hope was that she would be able to convince the king to have mercy on her and her people. She boldly accepted her responsibility and resigned herself to providence. If I perish, I perish, she said. The story of the book of Esther is but one example of how God's creation has fallen and has been marred by sin and is full of injustice, injustice wrong given for right, right given for wrong, and strife, enmity, conflict, war. Yet the example from these chapters is that God's people are at times called to take bold stands in the face of this fallen condition. In the face of evil, we are to work for justice and peace guided by the invisible justice of God. In the face of evil, we are to work for justice, peace, guided by the invisible justice of God. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace, facing it. Had Esther fallen out of favor with a powerful king? The king had a history of being petty and replacing queens he didn't like with other women from his large harem. Would he pick another woman for the prestigious position of first lady of the empire? Esther probably trembled as she approached the courtyard and she probably looked down. Surely the king had noticed her, but she avoided eye contact with a powerful monarch. Would his eyes squint with contempt for her? Would they be full of lust? 
or would they be brimming with love or mercy? Esther, said the king. Queen Esther, she was relieved. Esther approached the king, and the king made his first request. What is it, Queen Esther? A banquet, she said. May it please the king to join me at a banquet I have prepared for you and the most honorable man in your court. The bold action of Esther was driven by the responsibility she perceived with the help of Mordecai, as we read in chapter 4, that she was to work for the justice and peace of God's people in this moment. Now, why God's people? Why the Jewish people? The story so far has shown that God's people are the ones who are singularly targeted, yet always carefully protected. In chapter 5, we continue to see that Mordecai's ethnic identity is still significant for Haman. In 5.13, I see Mordecai, the Jew. John Mark, a couple weeks ago, explained the cosmic background for the struggle between Haman and Mordecai. Both men represent warring seeds with a history of the conflict going back at least to the forefather Isaac. In fact, from the very beginning, the conflict is created when the serpent, Satan, tempts the woman. But the biblical storyline through the story of the patriarchs and the exodus show that God carefully protects this people. He protects his elect, often through ordinary people like you and me and the little orphan who was Esther. We too, then, like Esther, may be called at times to work for the justice and peace of God's people and for our neighbors. The gospel expands our concerns So we not only follow the example of Queen Esther at this moment to work for justice and peace for God's people, but we also do for whoever would be called our neighbor. Isn't that the example and the lesson of Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan? The occasion for Esther's defining moment to stand and act was the threat of imminent genocide of her neighbors, the Jewish people. For us... Opportunities to act for our neighbors may not be so grand in scale. We pray it's not. A schoolmate may be bullied at school, and they may need your help. Or a friend on tight finances may need your resources. If we see a person, our neighbor, metaphorically the wounded, the metaphorical robbed neighbor, the victim of injustice and violence, We are to care for that person as our own neighbor. This is the example of Esther, and this is the example of Jesus Christ. So Esther sought the king to stand and work for the justice and peace of her people. That night, the empire's second-in-command was just couldn't believe himself. He had been invited to two private feasts with the king and queen. His pride swelled up and he returned home to tell his wife and friends how wonderful and how marvelous he really was. I'm probably the greatest thing that has happened to the Persian Empire or to the world since Cyrus the Great, he probably boasted. Only one thing could bring him down. The sight of that dishonorable, pretentious little man, Mordecai. Haman's friends and wife egged him on. 
Oh, if Mordecai bothers you that much, you ought to build a gallows and hang that man on it, and the whole city will see it. And so Haman had the gallows built for his final revenge. However, that night, the tables began to turn against Haman. The king had a sleepless night. Maybe the stresses of managing the empire, or he maybe ate too much, or drank too much. And he decided to read the recent records of the empire's history. One account surprised him. It was of a man who had saved the king's life by reporting an assassination plot that was brewing within the royal courts. The man had been a hero, yet he had never been honored. The words of these historic records were the only evidence of that man's actions. I must honor such man, exclaimed the king. The next morning, the king's right-hand man, Haman, strolled into the palace feeling very good about himself. But before he could ask whether he could hang that despicable Mordecai on the brand-new gallows he had, the king shot a question. Uh, what should be done for the man who came, whom the king wants to honor? It was a veiled question, but the proud Haman missed its subtlety and thought, who's the object of that honor? Must be me. Well, parade him around like he's the king himself. Get your horse, get your clothing, and put him on it all around the city. Good, replied the king. Haman, you are my, my, my trusted advisor from the second in command. I ordered you to take Mordecai, the Jew, and give him such honor. He saved my life, and I desire to exalt him before all the city to see. Remember, my main proposition was that in the face of evil, we are to work for justice and peace, by, guided by the invisible justice of God. We've considered how we can work for justice and peace for God's people and for our neighbors. Now, the sleepless night, what does it teach us? We are to work for justice and peace with ultimate faith and hope in divine justice. With ultimate faith and hope in divine justice. First, we must have faith that divine justice acts today, today, invisibly, through providence. Mordecai and Esther's plan did not involve a sleepless night by the king. Right? God provided that night. It was, a, it was his action. And this proved essential for two reasons, at least. One, Mordecai's good deed would be fresh in the king's mind the next day. And two, the irony of the situation would better teach God's people God's role in the plan. God moves in a thousand different ways and through a thousand different means in every one of our lives, right? God is active to help us grow and be fruitful in every cause he has given us, be it raising a family or growing a healthy business or working for the welfare of your community or country, providing for the needs of the spiritually weak spiritually and physically needy. 
We must have faith in every of those areas that divine justice is active today through providence. This is at least a warning for us. Not to absolutize a view of justice that is focused on human action. The slogan goes, justice delayed is justice denied. Justice delayed is justice denied is really only true in an ultimate sense, in a worldview where God is not imminently active in his creation. We don't resign ourselves to inaction, of course. We must act. Justice delayed is justice denied can be, and it is a very, very painful and true statement as far as it goes to many people in this world. Esther had to risk her life for her people. With our actions, however, we are called to have faith in God in his intentional work of providence. Faith in sleepless nights of people we don't even know. Faith in the distinctive, faith is the distinctive and crucial Christian contribution to our community's work for justice and peace. Just a couple nights ago, the city center had witnessed Mordecai weeping and wailing. Now they saw him riding the king's horse, dressed in royal clothes. The humiliation Mordecai had experienced two days ago now lay on Haman. Haman hurried off home, mournful and with his head covered. Verse 12. This time, his wife and friends had no advice for him other than a premonition. Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. At this, the king's eunuchs came to bring Haman to the queen's feast. Once again on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther. So the king asked the queen three times for her request. On the second day is the third time. Up to this point, Esther had not revealed her hand, but now was the right opportunity. Before his most trusted advisor, and after he had so persisted in giving to Esther whatever she asked, and given that he had a full stomach and probably a slightly altered judgment because of the wine, it would be really hard for the king to ignore his, her request. O king, save my people, she exclaimed, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. The king seemed furious. How could someone do this against a people in his own empire, against the people of Mordecai, that righteous man who saved my life, and against the people of this queen of mine? Who is the one who devised this genocide, he asked. Esther, in effect, says, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl. The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman, the greatest thing that's ever happened to the Persian Empire since Cyrus the Great, now saw his life flash before his eyes. He knew he was doomed. After the king stormed out of the dining room furious, Haman, the one who just a few weeks ago had the empire falling at his feet, 
was now falling before a Jewish woman pleading for his life. Esther gives no response to him. The foolish king could, not, could be convinced about the injustice against her, uh, her people, but the wicked Haman was incapable of repentance, and divine justice required his punishment. So we reach one of the climaxes of the book. Guided by the invisible justice of God, Esther worked for the justice and peace for, of her people. Here we learn something about the importance of compassion and shrewdness in that work. The importance of compassion and shrewdness. First, Esther compassionately identified with the cause of the persecuted. Notice how Esther was highly deferent to the king. Right? She, it seems like she doesn't want to come off as self-seeking. Right? If slavery had been her people's lot, she wouldn't even bother the king. Also, Esther does not associate herself with Mordecai, who had just been exalted by the king. She was not looking for more honor. And she links herself to her people. She places herself in the, in the plight of her people as their representative and advocate. So Esther compassionately identified with the cause of the persecuted. Second, Esther shrewdly persuaded the fool. Shrewdly persuaded the fool. What changes for the king? Right. In chapter 3, he was the one who assented to Haman's request to exterminate this ethnic people. In short, I think the king is still a fool. He doesn't really come to his senses at this moment. He's just played. Esther played the king, right? He made the king requested of Esther three times. She, he made three requests to her. She puts her she, Esther puts the king in a position where after he requests three times for her wish and desire, it further cements a guarantee that he will have to do what she asks him to do. Moreover, the king is active, he acts impulsively on wine. This is, uh, it, it brings up in the story, he comes, he, he's drinking wine when the request is made. He comes out furious from the wine. And this king appears oblivious to Haman's scheming, right? He gives his ears to this wicked man. Yet, the king is capable of course correction. And Esther knows that she must persuade him in order for her to be delivered from the advice of the wicked. So Esther shrewdly persuades the fool. And third, Esther shrewdly undermines the wicked. She shrewdly undermines the wicked. Esther does not directly confront Haman. She goes to the one who could, the king. Neither Mordecai nor Esther appeal to Haman. He just seems like a lost cause. Haman's scheming proves that he wasn't just a deceived person like the king was. He was actively seeking the destruction of the Jews. Esther's very shrewdly undermines Haman by drawing the king to her side. Moreover, Esther leads Haman along to undermine him without him even noticing it. 
In the first feast, Esther anticipates a second feast. Nothing's revealed in the first feast. Haman feels happy about himself that he has been invited. This sets up a complete opposite feeling the very next day when he goes home. With this feast, Esther raises the pride of the wicked man to its highest peak in the story in the first feast, just to be brought down later. Jesus Christ was both compassionate and shrewd, sharp, astute, incisive. His work required just immeasurable compassion to minister to the poor and needy. But it also required a sharp wisdom to deal with those religious and secular rulers. In fact, the world is so complex, right? And we often must engage with a variety of people, the ignorant, the indifferent, the devious, both the sick and the violent, the fool and the wicked. Compassion and shrewdness are gifts from God. They're gifts from God, and we need them both. As Esther was given such gifts at this time, I think our only application is let's pray that it be given to us as we follow her example. In the final act of God's reversing justice, Haman's last moments before the world to see would not be a military conquest of a a victorious commander. It would not be the martyrdom of a hero of the empire, but it would be the public execution of a wicked traitor. Haman would be hanged on the gallows he built for a despicable man himself. The enemy of the Jews had been defeated in a sweeping act of justice. What's more, the unrighteous wealth of Haman was given as a gift to Esther and Mordecai. God humbled the proud, and he exalted the humble. Although the text has lots of implications for us, and I outlined some already, and those who, as we work through the story, um, it would be wrong and probably uh, foolish of myself to avoid the discussion of this spiritual typology in the story. What's going on underneath the words, in a way? Just like Haman, Satan attempts to destruct the God, God's people. First in the garden, then in Egypt, then in Persia, then in that little town of Bethlehem, and finally on the hill outside of Jerusalem. Every time, every time, he was outwitted by God, and the people of God were saved. Just like Haman, Satan was hoist by his own petard. The gallows meant to put an end to the righteous Mordecai was Haman's downfall. The cross meant to defeat the Son of Man and the Son of God was Satan's downfall. And finally, like Mordecai, Christ who was once humbled, in the end is exalted and receives the power and honor of the kingdom to himself. So this story prepares us well for the gospel. These chapters are rich with lessons for us. The one I focused on this afternoon was this. In the face of evil, again, we are to work for justice and peace, guided by the invisible justice of God. We work for the justice of, peace of God's people, but also according to the gospel and to the teachings of Christ to all who we call our neighbors. At all times, 
this work must include compassion. And often, it will require shrewdness, just as was required of Esther to persuade the fool and undermine the wicked. And finally, this work should be done with ultimate faith and hope in divine justice. I touched on faith already, but now I want to close with a call for hope. In our story, God's justice not only operated invisibly through providence in that sleepless night of the king, but also by the final act of reversal. Proud Haman's estate was in power, was given to the humble Mordecai. In fact, this result was certainly beyond anything that Esther and Mordecai had ever planned for or hoped for. The reversal is not our work, but God's work. Hope. Hope means the expectation of possessing that which we long for. We hope for heaven, for the vision of God, for resting, peace, and complete justice. But once our walk through to the book of Esther has not ended, the story hasn't ended, it has a couple of chapters to go, neither has our story, of course, the victory in the halls of power is accomplished, right? But we, like the Jewish people of Esther's day, at this point in his story, are still threatened by enemies. And so we hope for final justice and peace in that day when we all can enter into the spiritual state of Christ, given to Christ. The sweet and awesome place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we face the evils of this world, please guide us away, always by your divine justice. Lead us to the ways of peace. Calm us with assurance of your ever-acting providence and encourage us with a final and certain hope. Through Christ, your Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.